the Ten Commandments and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything be that belongs to your neighbor. It's difficult. It is full of sticky situations and exceptions to truisms. But you don't need it to be spelled out of a book to live by strong moral principle. I want to be the best person that I can be. I want to do well by people. To love deeply and be loved deeply. I want the best life I can get. To be excited to wake up in the morning. I want to think about existence. To stretch and bruise my brain through learning. To raise children who love learning, who are confident and open and love others. I want to pass to them as many of my pros and as few of my cons 
That's possible. I want to laugh, to enjoy the pleasures of food and travel and art and literature. To see great sunsets and be thrashed by great storms. I want to shiver with wonder and awe at the universe. And nature. To sob at the absurd, unbearable brightness of human existence. To glow right at the heat of human triumphs. I shake my head in shame and disbelief at our broken record failures. I want to be stirred by music, to be broken by drama. I want to live forever. And I see the appeal of slipping away eventually into the eternal quiet. The human lifetime is a season of growth, a tiny twirl. The human branch, the marble limb of the tree of life. It is a carnival ride and a game of dice. The low bar is survival. The high bar is progress. The taste of brie, the sound of children's laughter. With the sustaining fuel keeping us aloft through the surprises of each fresh day. It's a moving piece, isn't it? Perhaps a little bit pretentious, but I've watched it a few times this week, and each time I've been caught by a different part. I found myself saying, yes, I want to do well by people, to love deeply and be loved deeply. Yeah, that resonates. I want to raise children who love learning, who are confident and and, and open and, and love others. Yeah. I want to laugh, to enjoy the pleasures of food and travel and art and literature. Yes, yes, I do. As I watched that, I felt there's a lot that connects with me there. You too? But notice where it started. Here's with the opening lines. Living is difficult. It's full of sticky situations and exceptions to truisms. But you don't need it to be spelled out in a book to live by strong moral principle. You don't need it to be spelled out by a book. Today we're starting a short series on the Ten Commandments. We'll look at the first three commandments this week and the next two weeks. Everyone's heard of the Ten Commandments. They've left a a massive footprint on human history. And yet in today's world, they can feel just misplaced. Not necessarily because they're outdated or anything like that, but it's just that Like they said, you don't need it to be spelled out in a book to live by strong moral principle. In fact, if anything, when it is spelled out to you in a book, it can feel so constrictive, perhaps even repressive. Like a straitjacket on our moral and spiritual lives. In fact, 
so our world feels today. The best thing you can do is actually to, to, to break free from the rules in the book and experience things for yourself and to figure it out that way. And if that's kind of the rough sentiment about the Ten Commandments in general, well, the first commandment really sums up all our worries, doesn't it? In the first commandment, I'm told I can have no other God except for the God that's apparently speaking to me there. Which is just so narrow, isn't it? So restrictive, the straitjacket. It's giving me no room to move, no room to explore, no room to think about it for myself. It's easy to see why the Ten Commandments do get a bit of a bad rap today. But that's what we're going to explore. Are they really a, a, a moral straitjacket? And particularly with this first commandment, is it narrow and restrictive, oppressive? Today I'm going to say this. The first commandment is about being exclusively God's. And that isn't narrow or restrictive. But that's a good thing. It's actually a really good thing for us. Why don't I pray? And then we'll look at the Bible. Our God in heaven, we so thank you that you have the God who's spoken. So as we come now to reflect... Consider and apply your word to our hearts. We pray that you would be active among us by your spirit. Father, those words of mine which are, uh, reflect what you say are true and helpful. We pray that they would stick in our ears. But those words of mine that are not, let them fall to the ground, we pray. Grow us. Help us be mature. And make us yours now, we ask. Amen. Well, the Ten Commandments are recorded for us twice in the Bible. The first time is in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Exodus records the dramatic escape of the Israelite nation. They'd been slaves in Egypt there for quite a long time. But God does all sorts of amazing things. And so suddenly, then the Israelites are able to get out. They're led by a guy named Moses. Uh, and he, they come to a place called Mount Sinai. Now, we're not entirely sure where Mount Sinai really is. There's lots of kind of mountains in this particular region, but it's around there somewhere. But at Mount Sinai here, just as this kind of fledgling nation takes its first steps, God speaks to them. And the words that God first speaks are the words of the Ten Commandments. And then a few books later in the Bible, we find the Ten Commandments again. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy literally means second law. Because Deuteronomy is the second time the leader of Israel, Moses, it's the second time Moses tells the law to the Israelites. And so you think, why? What's happened here? Why do they need to hear it again? It's because something has gone wrong. Between Exodus and Deuteronomy, the people wouldn't listen to God, and so they didn't go to the place that God told them. They didn't take the land that God promised them. And now that first generation who came out of Egypt has all died, and the second generation has risen up. They stand on the verge of the promised land, around about there. And before they go in, Moses again recounts to them the Ten Commandments. And in both places, the first command is this. You shall have no other gods before me. It's a call to be exclusively God's. 
And that's the first point today. The command is about being exclusively God's. It means belonging to God. You are his and his alone. Really, there are three things that the commandment is saying no to. Firstly, it's saying no to any other God. You can't ditch God for another God. You're to belong to this God and exclusively to this God. It also says no to mixing other gods in with God. You can't try and serve another God at the same time as this God. You can't straddle the fence. You're to be exclusively God's. It also says no to having no God. Being an atheist is out. Being agnostic about God is is, is out. The commandment says, here is your God. You are to be his now. Exclusively. And in the Old Testament, throughout the history of Israel, this was supposed to distinguish them, to, to make them different to all the other nations. It marks them out. See, the other nations around them have lots of gods, but Israel was to have only one god. And it wasn't one of these gods that the other nations had. It was this god, the one who's speaking to them, the one who's giving them these Ten Commandments. But the thing is, they keep failing at this. They, they end up worshipping these gods of the nations around them. Gods called Baal and Ashtoreth and Chemosh and Moloch. They end up worshipping the sun and the moon and the stars. And often it's not that they'll abandon God completely. They just mix him in with these other gods. So that to them, their God becomes one of many. And they're not exclusively gods anymore. Which means they don't stand out from the rest of the nations. They become like the rest of the nations. Here's a question for you. What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be good? How does the average person on the street answer that question? Well, the good person is the one who's kind to other people, right? It doesn't hurt or kill or do bad things to others, at least not intentionally anyway. You know, Jesus was once asked this question. Someone came up to him and said to him, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Which is basically like asking, what does it mean to be good, Jesus? Tell me. Listen to Jesus' response. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we talk about goodness, we often start with the way that we treat other people. And there's something right about that. In fact, Jesus says it's very important Loving one another is really important. But according to Jesus, there's something that's even more important than that. According to Jesus, the most important thing you can do is to love God and to love God wholly. You see, Jesus is reaffirming that first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. 
And the problem is, when, when we love others, and we love others ahead of God, well, actually, at that point, God is not given his rightful place as God. And that's something that Jesus won't stand for. He says, the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all of your being. So take a look at how one Bible commentator put it. He said, Yahweh, uh, in, in the Bible, God's personal name is Yahweh. Yahweh could not tolerate rivals. Yahweh could not tolerate rivals. When you put it like that, it's a little bit confronting, isn't it? God can't tolerate rivals? He's not content with second place in your life. He won't put up with you having any other God but him. He commands us to make him and him only number one. It's the kind of thing that led the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens to call God a divine dictator. Hitchens puts him on the same level as someone like Kim Jong-un. This is, this is a quote from him. He, Hitchens refers to God as one who is greedy for praise from dawn till dusk. Is that what God is really like? An egomaniac who can't handle the thought of a rival God receiving any praise? Imagine for the moment, it's AFL Grand Final Day. And the Crows have just won the Premiership. Kind of hard to imagine. Yeah, I know right now. It's uh, not looking like that's going to happen for a little while. But stick with me here. Okay. We're believers, aren't we? Uh, what's, our, what's our Prime Minister say? I believe in miracles. Yeah? No. Um, but imagine they're there. Grand final day. Uh, they, they interviewed... Tex Walker just had a, a, an astounding game. They interview him afterwards... And the interviewer says, Tex, you were fantastic today, just amazing. Uh, you, you were quick, you were agile. Your goal kicking was sublime. Your skills are unmatched. Imagine at that, point, at that moment, Tex Walker turns to the interviewer and he says, you know what? You're right. I'm amazing. No one in the AFL is on my level right now. I am sublime. You'd puke, wouldn't you? Of course, he never would say something like that. He, you, you, they just roll out all the cliches. It was a team performance, full credit to the boys. I can't do it without, can't do it without them. And it might be a cliche, but it's actually very true. It's very right. Because the Tex Walker should deflect the glory to others. He's only in the place he's in because of other people. Because of his teammates who got the ball to him at the right time. Because of the coaching staff that got the team working together well. Because of the sponsors and fans who've paid his wage for the last however many years. Because of the parents who, when he was a young fella, took him around to all the games so he could learn the skills as a young guy. And on top of all that, there's the God who's given him his skills and abilities in the first place. He does owe so much to so many. But that's not the case with God, is it? Think about it. Who could God deflect his glory to? Who does God owe something to? 
If God is who he says he is, surely the answer is no one. If the God of the Bible is who he says he is, then there's, there's no other God, which means he can't say it's a team effort, because it wasn't. There's only him. That is, there's, there's no one to whom God should deflect any glory or praise or honor or fame. There is no other who can rightly share his place as God because he and he alone is God. It's not egomania or greed for praise. It's just God calling us to live in line with reality. So in this his very first commandment, we're called to be exclusively, exclusively God's. But here's the thing. Being exclusively God's is not repressive. It's not a straitjacket on my moral or, or, or spiritual life. It's actually really good. It is good to be exclusively God's. And that's the second point for today. It's good to be exclusively God's. A wise man once posed this question. How do you discover your real religion? How do you discover your true God? It's what you're most afraid to lose, isn't it? The thing that you can't live without. It's, it's the thing that you're building your life on. What's that for you? Family? Career? Money? Possessions? A, a, a good reputation? Social standing? Fun and experiences? Power? Control? Look, everybody has a God. Even the person who calls themselves an atheist has a God of sorts. The trouble is sometimes we find it hard to figure out exactly what our God is. We just worship our gods so instinctively. Here's another test you can do. Your God is the thing that you sacrifice to. Your God is the thing that you sacrifice to. So for example, and let me take career as an example. If career is your God, you'll sacrifice to it. You'll put in the long hours which means you sacrifice your social life and you sacrifice uh, time with your kids. You perhaps even end up sacrificing your marriage all in the name of the mighty God of career advancement. Or take reputation, social status. If your personal reputation is your God, you'll sacrifice to it by not talking about the things you believe in so that you can keep people happy so that your social standing can stay good and you don't rock the boat. What is your God? Really, what, what is your God? Everyone has one. It's like Bob Dylan said, you may be an ambassador to England or France, you may like to gamble, you may like to dance, you might be the heavyweight champion of the world, you might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. It might be your family. It might be collecting experiences. It might be your bank balance. or Whatever it is, you do serve something. You do have a God. What is your God? 
tomorrow um, I start annual leave and my family's about to go down to Port Elliot for a couple of weeks. We're hopefully going to be enjoying the delights of the bakery, so if we come back a little plumper, that is why. Um, one of the things I enjoy about holidays is actually, this might sound a bit weird, but I enjoy packing the boot. It's a fun challenge. It's Tetris. Life-sized. Especially now that we have two kids, because you notice our kids are so much smaller than this, but they, they take up so much room in the boot, all the things you've got to take for them. There's kind of barely any, any room left for Pippa and I to throw in some clothes. But every time I go to pack the boot, I have this saying that I say to Pip. Pip, you know, one's manliness is directly proportional to how well he can pack his boot. <laughs> she, she does well to put up with my bad sense of humor at times. But, but I, do, I enjoy the challenge of, of packing the boot. And I'm gonna t- uh, Can I let you in on the secret of how to make sure you get your boot packed really well? Here, here it is. Uh, this may be revolutionary for some of you, but stick with me here. I think it's pretty simple. What you've got to do first, you get your big, heavy suitcases. These go in first. Everything else fits around them. Around them, you'll put uh, your smaller, kind of hard objects, then your squishier objects. But the last thing that goes in is your doona. Because you see, the doona is nice and malleable. It can fit into all the cracks and crevices, all the little spaces that are left over. Your doona go- so your doona goes in last. Makes sense, right? You with me so far? That's the beauty of the dinner. It squeezes around everything. It'll go wherever you've got space. And here's the point. In your life, your God is the suitcase, the big, heavy suitcase. It's the thing you put in first. It's the thing that takes priority. And everything else will fit around it. You might say that God is your God. But if you treat God like a doona, if you just make God fit into all the other spaces that are left over, well, God is not your real God then, is he? Something else is. Whatever the suitcase is, whatever that goes in first, that's your real God. So what's your God? Really, what's your God? Remember the Israelites? Remember what they used to do? They, 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 they didn't really ditch God entirely. What they would do is try and mix God in with these other gods. I reckon most of us feel like we can pull that off. I think I do. We try to mix our gods. You know, we want the stellar career and we want the great family life. And we don't want to sacrifice one for the other. So we have these two gods. Which means we're caught in the never-ending chase to find the perfect work-life balance. Or we try to follow Jesus, but we also want a good personal reputation. We have these two gods and so if we're forever caught in the battle, wondering, do I speak up now? I can't. I'd swim up. And we never end up sharing our faith at all. Jesus speaks plainly about this. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. 
At this stage, he's particularly addressing money, and so he goes on to say this. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. But it's true, no matter what gods we try and mix together, when push comes to shove, one of them takes priority. One will have really captured our hearts, and one will be forced into the role of the duna to be squished around what your real God is. You sacrifice the less favoured God for the true God of your heart. What, what is your God, really? Here's the thing with other gods, any God that isn't the real God. They're actually bad for you. They're bad for you because they take. They take from you. They, they offer a lot. But in reality, they take from you. And you become captive to them. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, let me use money as an example. The God of money offers so much, doesn't it? Uh, you get enough money, you have the nice house, the big screen TV, you can have the expensive overseas holidays and still kind of live on more than bread and peanut butter. Money is the thing that promises us security in this fragile world, but it never satisfies. Never. It's a really interesting book that's been written a number of years ago. It's called Affluenza. Has anyone heard of this book before? A couple of people have, yeah. Uh, I want to read you a little excerpt from this book. This is not a Christian book, by the way. This is just economists. Uh, Here's an excerpt from it. They say, Most people cling to the belief that more money means more happiness. Yet when they reach the financial goals they've set, they find that they do not feel happier, except perhaps fleetingly. So rather than question the whole project... They engage in an internal dialogue that goes like this. I hope that getting to this income level would make me feel contented. I do have more stuff, but it doesn't seem to have done the trick. I obviously need to set my goals higher. I'm sure I'll be happy when I'm earning an extra $10,000. But of course, you earn the extra $10,000 and the cycle repeats. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Because money just doesn't give you happiness. It promises so much, but in the end, it it, it takes. It just takes from you. It takes your time and your energy. It takes up your, your mental space as you worry about it. And you end up never really being content at all. Disney even recognizes this. I have a three-year-old daughter who loves Disney princesses. So like, I can tell you about all things Disney right now. Um, the Little Mermaid, though, she has a song. This is, this is one of uh, the lines that Ariel sings in The Little Mermaid. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's-its and what's-its galore. You want the thingamabobs? I've got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. Because no matter how much you've got, money and the things money can buy, it offers you so much, but, but then it just takes from you. It doesn't leave you satisfied. It takes from you until you end up with a nice fat bank account, a full house full of all the funnest things, 
And you're totally dissatisfied. And you're wondering what happened to your life. Money is a horrible God. It's a life-stealing God. The same is true uh, for the God of fun and experience. Uh, um, Humans of New York is a Facebook page. It's, it's, it's just They post up an interview just about each day, just an interview with someone kind of randomly off the street. Uh, this woman was featured last week. She talked about how as an 18-year-old, she grew to love the club scene, the dancing, the music, the freedom, the people. She says, it was everything I was looking for. But then something changed. Listen to her words. She says, but it was an illusion. My friends have lost jobs from partying. One of them lost his kids. And deep down, I know they're sad because they don't do anything for themselves. They miss something in their life and they know it's too late. So they just wait for the weekend, wait for that moment to come again. And it always comes again for two or three more days, but it never lasts because Mondays exist. You wake up and you're like, oh no, it's over. But that's okay because in five days it starts again. Then one morning you wake up and, and seven years have passed and you're 25 and you still haven't gone back to school. Experience and fun and parties, I mean, it offers so much, but it's a horrible God. Look what it does. It took, it just took, didn't it? It took seven years from this woman's life. From others, it took their job. From one guy, it took his own son, a relationship with his own son. Experience and looking for fun, it's a horrible God. And here's what I want to say to that. The true God. This is, this is the one thing you must hear. If you hear nothing else, Here's the one thing you must hear. The true God, the God of the Bible, does not take from you. The God of the Bible gives to you. He gives. This is why it's good to be His. This is why He's better than any other God. He doesn't take from you. He gives. And He gives at a great cost to Himself, right? Take a look at this verse from the Bible. It says, For God... So loved the world, so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Can you see, friends, the heart of God for us? He's not regifting some old unwanted present. He gives us his very own son, the most precious thing, Jesus, so that we can have life. Being exclusively God's, it's not a straight jacket on our lives. No, no, no. It's the key to real life. A life not where your God keeps demanding from you and keeps taking from you until there's nothing left. But it's a life lived with a good God, a God who gives to you. 
he may ask some uncomfortable things of you. But, but knowing his character, knowing that he's the God who's already given the ultimate gift for you, it's, it's, it's so freeing. Because it means that everything he asks for you, he's not asking to, to, to try and take from you. He's asking for your own good. He's asking out of what's good for you. Here's how another part of the Bible puts it. He, God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If God has given us the the most ultimate and costly of gifts, why would we think he's holding out on anything for us? Here's God's command. You shall have no other gods before me. And this is a good command. This is a command that is good for us to live by, a command that stems from love. Life under this God is good for us. Isn't that the kind of God you can follow? Isn't that the kind of God you can trust? Isn't that the kind of God who... It's worth throwing out, crushing, getting rid of any other God that you have in your life so that you can be his and his exclusively. Isn't he worth it? Let me pray for us. Our God, we want to say right now, Thank you. Thank you that you're not like these other gods. Thank you that you give. You give at great cost to yourself. You give us your son Jesus so that we can have life. God, so often these other things capture our hearts and we recognize that we can be led astray from you, that we're prone to wander. Our prayer today is that you'd forgive us. Our prayer today is that you'd change us and capture our hearts with a bigger vision of you, of who you are, of how good you are for us. That we might yearn for you and you alone. That we might follow you and you alone, serve you and you alone. We need your help in this, Father. Would you please be with us in the coming week that you would be our God, that we would have no other gods before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.